Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Advent to you. It's so good to have you here at church. If we haven't met, my name is Matthew. I'm um, the pastor here, and it's wonderful to, to share the morning with you and to sing to Jesus and to remember what is most true. Um, I, uh, if we haven't met yet, I hope we can meet afterwards. I'd love to get to say hey and know your name and all that stuff. Um, I'm going to be reading from the book of Matthew today. So Matthew chapter 3, if you want to be following along in a Bible, I would just encourage you to, to turn there. Matthew 3, we're going to read the first 12 uh, verses of this chapter. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is, one of, uh, this is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more important than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this season and Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to sit with these words of John, to hear this call come across the landscape of our life. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's near. And Lord, I just, even as I say that, I just imagine that it's just within grasp for each one of us here, the access to what it means to be in your kingdom, to have you as king. It is not beyond the length of our arms to reach out and take. And that you would come so close, Lord, and want to be so close to us. And God, let us be aware today. Give us a vision of Jesus that is more compelling and solid and real than all the other things flying around in our life right now that feels so compelling and real. God, give us a picture of Jesus that moves our hearts towards him. We pray for your spirit to be here, and we just ask, Spirit, that you would come and do what you do, that you would grow things in this space today. You would grow things. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, we are in the season of Advent. It's a four-week season. It leads up to Christmas, and it is the new year of the church. 
which is how we begin the this, this story every year again as a people. We remember that we are a people who are waiting for God to break in. That's who we are. I mean, that's actually true all year long, but we begin the story that way to remember that we are people who are waiting for God to break in. Then at Christmas, we celebrate that God is a God who has broken in. He is a God with us. Um, But even though he broke into Bethlehem years ago, even though Christ has come and the Spirit has been poured out, we are still today people who are aching and longing and waiting and yearning for God to come once again. And so the Orthodox call this season the bright sadness. Sad because it's realistic. It like actually understands the world as it is, and it recognizes that we live in a world that is cloaked in darkness, that things are not the way they're meant to be, and that we are, as we just sang, that the path to misery is still open, that one day the key of David will come and, and make way that leads to high, make it safe, but close the path of misery. But right now the path of misery is wide open, and many of us in this room might even find ourselves walking squarely in the center of the path today. We live in a world that is not as it's meant to be, and so we yearn and long and wait and grow our groaning muscles inside of us because it's a bright sadness. There's a hopeful, uh, there's hope in the sadness. We know the end. We know that God has come once. We know that God comes again. So I've been reading that book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago by Fleming Rutledge uh, on Advent, and um, she says in it, the church is in between the first and the second comings, and so therefore we can... We can be further understood, the church that is, as a life lived, this is great, on the frontier of the ages. The frontier of the turn of the ages. Which is just to say that to be a Christian you, is to be a person who has a sense of like what time it is. Like you know the day you're living in. You know what's going on. Which that can sound sort of great. Like that can sound a little cultic, you know, like, like, we, like, like we know what's going on and no one else does. Um, it's just to say like we just understand like God has come, God is coming. And so we live in this expectation. I love this image of a frontier because it's this idea that like we're kind of in, a, in the wild lands. We're in the bad lands. We're in like the tip of the spear. We're a place that's like not a lot of people want to inhabit. And that's where the church finds itself at this frontier between the turning of the ages. And so as we are in this frontier land, I think it's, um, I think it's appropriate and good that we would um, spend some time with John the Baptist, which is where we're going to be the next two weeks. John the Baptist, the most unlikely of Advent heroes. Um, probably none of you have a John the Baptist in your nativity set. Like, he doesn't make the cut. There's shepherds and magi. There's a baby, of course. Uh, there's um, a glowing mother and father. Um, there's all sorts of people. There's Herod and Elizabeth. There's lots of characters in this story, and John the Baptist is not one of them, and yet the church spends every December hanging out with this guy because John the Baptist's life was Advent. His whole life was an Advent sermon. Get ready. God is coming. Be aware. Know what time it is. Don't miss it. Here he comes. His whole life backed up and funded this Advent vision, and so the church rightly spends uh, time with him. But he is a weird figure. He's a wild man. He would have made you uncomfortable to be around. People wouldn't have wanted John in their church or as a neighbor or in their neighborhood group. They would have been like, could you move to another neighborhood so you can go to their group? He was an uncomfortable person to be around. Uh, Fleming Rutledge jokes, uh, she goes, I've never once opened the little door on an advent calendar and seen this wild, hairy man on the inside saying, repent. But that is the message of advent. Like, that is what advent is. Like, if ever, 24 days of just opening John every day, just eating a different bug that day and telling you, it's time to get your life together. God is coming. 
So this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves out in the wilderness with this person. It describes him as a wild man, a man wearing camel's hair and a leather belt who ate locusts and honey. So very strange. Now, if you're just coming to this with like no backstory, you're like, what, what is this guy's deal? But if you're coming to it with a, with a Jewish, with a Hebrew backstory, then you actually understand, oh, this is, this, is, this is a big deal. This guy is actually someone else entirely. So if you, go, if you have a Bible in front of you, I would just encourage you to flip four pages back or five, whatever it is that'll get you to Malachi chapter four. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. If you have an apocrypha, you'll have to jump more than four pages. You'll have to go through a whole bunch. But Malachi chapter four, and this is how the, new, this is how the Old Testament ends in the Christian Bible. Malachi was a prophet that spoke a word to God's people, and it was one of the last words spoken for a long time. See, it says, the days are coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all of the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave neither root nor branch. It's pretty intense language, right? Sounds kind of familiar. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, therefore, the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb and for all Israel. That is the book of Deuteronomy. And then here it is. For lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Elijah is the hero of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, he's not the most obvious one, especially if you aren't like, well-versed in like, some of the stories in First and Second Kings. But when Jesus transfigures on the mountain, it's Moses and Elijah that shows up. It's not Isaiah, it's not Jeremiah, it's not Daniel, it's not any of the other ones. It's really not Habakkuk or Habakkuk. No one even knows how to say his name. It's Elijah, this, this superstar, because he was a wonder worker, he was a miracle worker, he was a powerful man of God who could make the rain stop and could cause it to start again, who could bring down kingdoms and topple power structures. He was an incredibly, incredible man. And so in the prophet Malachi, it says, before the day of the Lord, before God comes and acts def- uh, definitively on the earth, I will send first the prophet Elijah, who was a wild man who lived on the fringes of society, who wore uncomfortable clothes. And so when you read about this man who suddenly, it says, and John appeared in the wilderness. That's not to say he wasn't born. He was. He has parents. You can read about it in Luke 1. But John appears in the wilderness dressed like, acting like, and bringing the message of Elijah to the people. And anyone who had a biblical imagination would have said like, oh, do you know what, do you know what time it is, if that's true? If Elijah's here, do you know what time it is? It means we're right here. We're on the, we're on the cusp. Any moment now, God's going to break in. So this is our person. This is the person in our text. Now, what is his message? What's the call of John? The call of John is to repent. That's really his life in a, in a word. Repent. Um, the word repent is, is uh, the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia. You want to, let's all say it together. Metanoia. That's 
Yeah, it means to think again. It means a change of mind. It, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean to, to confess your sins. That's not repentance. It means to change the way you think. It means to have a fundamental change in how you understand and view the world. But sometimes when we talk about repentance as simply thinking differently, we can just, I don't know, we can sort of, I think, blunt the idea of it a little bit. Because what it does is it just sort of, uh, in, the, in the time that we live, where like ideas are just like not even pennies on the ground. They're like less than pennies on the ground. Ideas are everywhere. And everyone's picking up ideas and thinking about them and chewing on them and taking little parts of it. And all of us are creating our own little individualistic way that we understand the world because you can't box me in. I don't fit in a category. I'm my own person. I think deeply about stuff. And when we talk about thinking again, we just communicate this idea, I think, unintentionally, that what we're saying is like, you know, just, just like, think, think, a little, like think about it. Think about your thinking a little bit. Is there like, like, we're not always doing that. And then we can just pick it up and go, actually, this isn't really working for me. But with repentance comes this basic idea, this fundamental, like, before we do anything, what's at the foundation of repentance? The foundation of repentance is the belief that I actually don't know what's right, that my thinking is wrong. And that's probably not a comfortable thought for many of us, because most of us probably feel somewhat like, I got here on purpose. I'm cogent. I think deeply. And yet repentance just begins with this sort of foundation like your thinking is wrong. You're thinking about the world wrong. You're thinking about your life wrong. You're thinking about what values, what's valuable wrong. You're off. You need to actually have your thinking fall into an alignment with a different kind of thinking. You're wrong in ways you didn't know. And you're more wrong than you realize. So think about the world differently. And John says when we do this, that our life will have evidence of it. Because right now, my life, the fruit of my thinking is my life. So you're like, what does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? It means, like, look at my life right now. The, my life lived, the decisions I make, the habits I have, the bad habits I have, the things that I, I return to again and again that aren't really good for me. This is the fruit of my thinking. This is the fruit of the way I think about the world, of my ideology, of, of how I understand God and how I understand myself. It's just, I just look, if I want to know, like, what is my thinking? Like, this is the fruit of it. And John says, I want you to think differently in such a way that the fruit of your life changes. That is, like, you think strongly enough about something that your behavior begins to change. Not just like, not just like you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it. That's just, that's what a lot of us do. That's just sort of the dance. Like, I think about it and it seems good, but actually nothing ever changes because the core foundational, what I actually hold to in my bones, isn't actually changing. And so John says, the word, the word he gives to us is, I want you to metanoia. I want you to repent. I want you to think differently about your thinking and think differently. And when you do, you'll have fruit. Your life will look different. The way you relate to people will be different. The way you understand money and power will be different. Your whole self will be different. The way you think of yourself and God and others and people who are opposed to you will be different because you will have a different sort of grid through which you're understanding and living. So that's John. We're setting him up. There he is. That's his message. Now we have in this text, in fact, most of this text is dealing with not John directly, but the things that John is saying to individuals, which I'll just call the resistance. He has resistors in this, in this story. Now, the resistors are, of course, the Pharisees. And if you're an OG Christian in here, you know that. Like, you know that the Pharisees are the bad guys in the New Testament. Everyone knows that. It's not, not novel. But let's imagine that you don't know that. 
Imagine that you actually uh, haven't read the rest of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, and you're actually coming from a Hebrew perspective, and for the very first time, you're picking up Matthew's gospel, and you're looking at it, and you're reading Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. Who is the resistance in Matthew 1 and 2? Who's the bad guy in Matthew 1 and 2? Anyone know? He's, there's one of them. He's a king. He kills a lot of kids. Herod, that's great. Uh, you guys are way better than 9 o'clock. There was very muffled at 9. I could hear you. So, I mean, you hear audience participation. The whole room lifts when we do it together. It's just, it's great. So Herod's the bad guy. He's a clear bad guy. And let me just tell you, nobody in Judea at this time had to be convinced that Herod's the bad guy. He's a puppet monarch of, of Rome. He's only there because he did some favor for Caesar Augustus way back, and then he's still sitting on the throne. But really, he's just, he's, he doesn't actually have any real power but he does have a lot of vision around architecture. But he's a very touchy person, an incredibly fragile ego. He's insanely jealous, and he has no central governing ethic by which he lived. So he's ruthless and dangerous and is willing to kill even his own kids if he starts to feel like they may be trying to grab his power. That's the person sitting on the throne in Matthew 1 and 2. And everybody knows he's the bad guy. You can't trust him. He's a terrible person. But then you get to Matthew chapter 3, and who are the bad guys? Herod is in the far distance. In fact, he doesn't show up until the very end of Matthew. He plays a very small part in this story. Matthew wants you to understand, like, where is the resistance to God's movement on the world coming from? Where is the resistance coming from? It's coming from the good guys. It's coming from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's coming from the religious, upright, moral people. It's coming from the people that you would have wanted to have as a neighbor, you would have wanted to have in your neighborhood group. A person that sort of keeps their nose clean and like does the next right thing. And like, we had this idea that Pharisees were like these terrible people. They weren't deviant people. They were, there wasn't like an underground mafia that the Pharisees were running. They, they were like the most scrupulous, upright, well-living, clean-living people you knew. And yet here they are. They're the ones that are now giving resistance to this message from God, which tells us something about what is actually most dangerous and our willingness to receive God's movement towards us. And it is not the obvious thing. It's not Herod. It's actually the thing within the camp. It's the thing within myself that I think is good. That's the most dangerous thing in me. In other words, don't miss the principle on this. It's easy to just turn, like, this doesn't relate to me. This is about ancient people. This is about Jewish people. No, this is absolutely about you and me. Because as long as Herod is the bad guy, I don't have to deal with my own resistance to God. Because there's always something like, I'm not like that guy. But the greatest threat to you experiencing God moving towards you is not your openly broken behavior. It is not helping, but it's not the greatest threat. The thing that is keeping you from experiencing God's redemptive movement towards you is the stuff that you think is good. The stuff that you're holding on to and that you find pride in the thing that enables you to look down your nose at other people because they don't have this or they don't think this way. That is what's motivating the Pharisees. John says it. He attacks it. He goes right after it. He says, you think that because you're sons of Abraham. It tells us everything. We, like their point of pride came from an identity that was based on their race. It was based on their affiliation. It was based on their ancestry. It was based on their behavior. And what are the things in my life what are the things in my life that are points of pride for me that enable me to look down my nose at other people, that enable me to feel superior or more evolved or more advanced or kinder or more accepting, or more generous, a better person? I wouldn't want to have that mindset. I wouldn't want to be like you. 
I like the way I think about things. I'm a better person. That's the same spirit that's at work in the story in Luke where there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Do you remember the story? Some of you might. There's a story that Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And tax collectors are like, boo. And Pharisees are like, yay. And in the story, these are, they both go into the temple and the, and the tax collector spends the whole time going like, please be merciful to me. Please be merciful to me. I, don't des- I need rescue and I don't deserve it. And the Pharisee stands far off and he says, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not a tax collector. Thank you that my life looks nothing like his life. Thank you that it's a life marked by ethics. It's a life marked by moral purity. Thank you that I fast twice a week. And thank you that I'm such a wonderful person that you couldn't help but love me. Thank you, God. And this is the spirit of Phariseeism. Listen, this is the spirit of Phariseeism. It's self-righteousness. It's the thing that enables me to look down my nose at a person who's different from me, who thinks different, who looks different, who acts different, who believes different, that feels superior. And it is the greatest danger to me becoming a person who allows God to do what he wants to do in my life. It's the brood of vipers in the room. And it's in all of us. And John wants you to know it's not where you think it is. The danger is not where you think it is. The enemy is in the camp. It's right here. This is actually the thing that's going to drive Jesus all the way to the cross. This. Resistance comes from within. So, G- so finally, John looks at these guys, and he says, um, actually, he looks, at, he looks at the rest of his people, his disciples. He says, I'm baptizing you with water, but there is someone who's coming after me who's more powerful than me. That's an understatement. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals, honestly. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the promise. The one who baptizes with Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? that mean? Is that good news? I mean, the tenor of this text feels like that might not be good news because the way that John talked made you constantly feel like, I mean, if I preached a John the Baptist sermon, like John the Baptist, like half of you would never come back here. And that's not because you're terrible people. It's because like he was a very, very uncomfortable person, apocalyptic and deeply prophetic and, and just gave this picture of this very violent understanding of the world and and so he says, Jesus is coming. He's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And that could make any, one, any number of us go like, I don't know if I actually want that. Like, that feels kind of scary to me based on everything else you're saying about axes and things like that. <laughs> what does it mean to be baptized by the fire and the Holy Spirit? Baptism is a word in Greek that means to, to soak um, thoroughly. It's actually the same kind of word they would use for pickling to give you an idea. It's a soaking that goes so deep it goes to the very constituent parts of a thing and and reconstitutes it. It makes it into a new thing. You know, if you put a cucumber in vinegar for long enough, there's no re-cucumbering that thing. That's what baptism is. It's it's being soaked so thoroughly to the bone, being immersed so thoroughly that you actually cannot, you can't go back. You're a new thing. And John says, there's someone who's coming after me and he is going to immerse you, reconstitute you, by drowning you fully in fire and the Spirit. In the book of Exodus, um, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and the children of Israel are camped at the base, and they've crossed the Red Sea, they've left Egypt by this point, and they're, they're kind of waiting before they go into the land. And Moses goes up, and it says, And the Lord Yahweh descends on the fire, and the whole mountain catches flame. 
that the presence of God is this, this fire. This, in fact, it, it says in, in later in Deuteronomy, the Lord is actually a consuming fire. The Lord himself is a fire, is a consuming fire, which could maybe even change the way you experience your fireplace this winter. Like God wants you to understand like something about what I'm like is actually this. It's a, it's a, it's a heat burning, giving, heat giving, purifying force. The Lord is a consuming fire. And the Holy Spirit is a, it's the presence of God. It's the power of God manifest. It is the life and the love of God manifest. It is the third person of the Trinity. What does it mean to be immersed, baptized into the fire and Holy Spirit? It means that the reason Jesus came is to take you and to bring you into the heart of ultimate reality, to surround you on all sides by the fire of God, the power and the presence of the Spirit of God, until you became something new entirely. Which is why he has a winnowing fork in his hand, because a winnowing fork is used for separating the things that are useless and worthless in us and the things that live and are life-giving, the seed. When you harvest grain, you take it into the tunnel. They used to do it. I'm sure they're far more advanced now. And they would take it and they'd actually throw it in the air and there was some sort of a wind moving across the grain and the chaff blows away and the kernel falls to the ground. And what is the kernel? The kernel is a source of life. It is food. It is seed. It is what makes the next crop. It's what goes on and on and on and what God wants to do. What happens when the baptism of the fire and spirit comes to me? The chaffy parts of me burn up and the solid real things that are life-giving and and provide substance for other people, that goes on. And so as C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, in the end, God shakes everything and only the unshakable remains. Why does God send his son? I mean, John clearly thinks like there's a great apocalypse coming. God is coming. He's going to met out his wrath. Things are getting very bad. He will come and baptize with fire and the spirit. And what does Jesus do? He does not come to judge, but experience judgment. And with that, he actually makes it possible for you and I to be moved from where you are right now into the heart of ultimate reality so that you can be where you're meant to be. And this is really good news. Like, this is what the message of Christmas is, and this is what the message of Advent is, to get yourself ready for this and to understand that this is what God's trying to do in you right now, and nothing less than this. This is what God is up to in your life right now. He is trying to turn the chaffy parts of you and blow them out of the way so that the real and solid and substantive thing can grow because he wants to carry you all the way into his his own heart. He wants you to be a, a new thing. He doesn't, want to con- he doesn't want you to continue anymore. He doesn't want you to just ke- keep rattling around the same thing. He doesn't want me to do that anymore. He has something better for me in store, uh, in store for me than that. And that's because he actually really enjoys that. He actually made you for that. He made you to experience life that way. And when I am experiencing alignment with God, I feel like a string that is perfectly tuned to the base note of ultimate reality. I just feel like my whole life is like, and it doesn't happen very often. I hope some of you know what this is like, where I feel like I'm, I'm, this is what I'm meant to be. This is where I am. Like, God, you're, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm responding to you. I'm believing you. I'm not, I'm not running. I'm not hiding. And I'm in alignment with God. And when I am, I feel, I feel like my life is like a string that is perfectly tuned to the base note of God's reality. And finally, like, I, like we can do something. We can make something beautiful. We can do a thing. And I'm not constantly this out-of-tune string, which is how I 
spend so much of my life out of tune. And if you know anything about music, and I know like half of you do and half of you probably don't, but if you know anything about music, like when a string is out of tune, it's like, <laughs> it's just like something's just off. In fact, I heard a musician once say, it's like, it's like, um, it's like a bad smell in the room you can't place. So when you have a guitar that's out of tune, it's just like something's not right. And I don't know quite what it is, but something's not right. And most, so much of my life is spent that way. Something's not right. I'm just slightly out of tune. I'm just not aligned right. It's not I'm, not, I'm not center. And what God wants to do is he wants to come and lift us up in the air and let the chaff blow away and bring us into the heart of ultimate reality and let the spirit and the presence of God and the fire of God come to us. And this is the message of Advent. This is John's word to you. I mean, get ready, prepare, repent, think differently, adopt a new life. If there is a, if there's, you know, if John's one of the heroes of Advent, probably the hero of Advent in many ways, but like the star of Advent is actually Mary, of course. And we don't get to talk about Mary very much because she's not in Matthew's gospel nearly as much, but I was thinking about her this week because it's a good time of year to think about the mother of God. And um, Mary is an incredible figure. She's a young girl. She's probably, probably in the opening pages of Luke, she's probably the age of my oldest. She's like 13 years old. And Gabriel comes to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you and grow something in you that's going to heal the world. And I would just imagine that maybe that's even something that you could hear right now as a word from God to you. The Holy Spirit wants to come to you and grow a thing in you that will heal the world. Do you believe that? The Spirit wants to do something in you that actually is going to have incredible ramifications in the world. He wants to grow something in you that is for the good of this world. And what does Mary say? What does Mary say? Yes. She says yes. That's what faith is, really. She says yes. Okay. Yes. And I heard our bishop say this in a sermon a year ago, and it's just stuck with me. I love it so much. He's, he says, the simple bent of Mary's heart towards yesness is what makes her a spiritual giant. Just the simple bent. Like you think about your own heart. What, what direction is your heart mostly bent? Just Mary, the simple, not yes, but, not yes, later. Just the simple bent bent of Mary's heart towards yesness, to be a person who embodies a spirit of yesness is what made her a spiritual giant. And what do you think that you might be able to say yes to today that God could be asking of you? Like, what might he be trying to do in you right now that you could just say yes to? It doesn't have to be the big thing. You know, the big thing can be a lot of pressure. But maybe there's like a small, a small thing in you that you could just say yes to. Like, guy. Just feel God poking at something. It might be on the fringes. It might be in like part of like an area of your life that feels like the wilderness, like way out on the outskirts. You could just say, yes, yes, Lord. I want you to grow a thing in me that will give life to the world. So yes, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say, okay. I'm not going to resist it. And when you do that, it's going to cost you something. I just want to tell you that. It's going to cost you. It's going to reform you. It's going to change your body. You put a baby in a, in a, in a person's body, the body is different. It's going to change you. It's going to affect you. It's going to cost you when we say yes to what God wants to grow in us. But what could you say yes to today? What is God inviting you into? Just a simple, 
okay, okay, here, yes. And that is the call of Advent for you and me, to recognize what your life is meant to be, what God has called you and me to do, and this is our season where we choose to practice yes. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and do something good and deep in us. We invite you. Let's all stand up together. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.